guys, my name is Reese, and I want to welcome y'all to the very first ever episode of Haunted Tea Podcast. I have my friend Tracy here for today's episode. She's going to co-host. Hey, you guys. And then we're going to hear her encounter at the end. Now, I'm just going to put this out here right here and now. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I've never done a podcast before. I don't know how to edit. It's all going to be kind of a learn-as-we-go kind of thing. So we ask that you give a little bit of grace for these first couple episodes, at least while we try to figure things out and make it to where it's a little bit better quality for you. I want to preface by stating that I am by no means a legit paranormal investigator. I'm not an expert in ghosts or cryptids or anything. I'm just some random ass amateur who's had a lifetime of personal experiences myself. And I needed a platform to talk about them without being made to feel like I'm crazy. So I figured a lot of the listeners are probably in the same boat. I'm just a mom, a wife, an animal rescuer, a regular ass person who's always been affected and targeted by things that I can't explain. And my whole life I've researched and investigated to try to make sense of it all. This show is intended to be educational, maybe a little bit spooky, and most of all a safe space for folks to share their own stories. The formatting might change as we get more into different episodes and we grow and morph as podcasts do. But one thing will always remain the same, and that is this will always be a safe space. And thank goodness for that. I want to take a second here and give a broad spectrum, multiple trigger warning for this episode, and I'm sure in all the ones to follow. We are a podcast discussing hauntings, ghosts, and some really dark entities. Maybe some lighthearted things too, but with many of these subject matters come mention of murder, suicide, death, mental health, and addiction, among any other things that people may be sensitive to. I tend to curse a lot. I'm going to try to keep it PG-13 because my own kids are going to eventually listen too. But none of these are topics where I plan to censor any of the content. I won't censor the co-hosts. I won't censor anyone that I'm interviewing. And I'm not going to whitewash over any uncomfortable history to protect anyone's feelings. So if any of those subjects trigger you, I suggest you go ahead and find another podcast to listen to. So here's the thing, y'all. I spent years and years struggling with talking about what I was experiencing because I felt crazy and I was being made to feel like I was crazy. When my worst paranormal encounters were occurring, I was deep in my active addiction and I was constantly being told that what I was seeing and feeling and experiencing wasn't real. It was just symptoms of all the drugs that I was on. And even when I had like actual witnesses to the torment and hell that I was enduring on literally a daily basis, I was just told, yeah, well, they're all on drugs too. So I know that feeling of being invalidated and being told that I, what I knew was real wasn't really happening, while at the same time struggling with my own sanity and a very real life or death war with the demons of my addiction. So I want this podcast to always be a safe space for anyone who's experienced something paranormal or something they can't explain and who needs to get those stories off your chest and out of your brain in a safe, understanding way. You're never going to be told that you're just crazy or you're just on drugs or have your mental health blamed on the shadows that lurk in your peripheral vision. My experience is that the demons that plague us like to target those of us whose mental health immunity is already lowered from addiction or depression or anxiety or any other affliction of the mind. So yeah, I might actually be crazy, but I also know that what I've dealt with over the years was and still is very, very real. So because of my experiences and my struggle with addiction. The topic of this episode is demons. My co-host Tracy has her own personal experience with a hell unlike any that I've ever imagined. But first, we're going to delve a little bit into the history of it and talk about what demons actually are. 
Merriam-Webster literally defines demon as an evil spirit or a source or agent of evil, harm, distress, or ruin. Examples they gave, the demons of drug and alcohol addiction or confronting the demons of his childhood. A quick summary from what Encyclopedia Britannica says, and I quote, angel and demon, respectively, any benevolent or malevolent spiritual being that mediates between the transcendent and temporal realms. The term demon is derived from the Greek word daimon, which means a supernatural being or spirit. Though it has commonly been associated with an evil or malevolent spirit, the term originally meant a spiritual being that influenced a person's character. The dominant interpretation has been weighted in favor of malevolence and that which forebodes evil, misfortune, and mischief. Well, you know, the thing is, the belief in demons, it's not connected with any particular culture, religion, or view of the cosmos. They have a very wide geographical and lengthy historical role as spiritual beings, influencing humans in their relationship to the sacred or holy. And, you know, they can be semi-human, non-human, or ghostly human beings who, for various reasons, they generally attempt to coerce humans into not attaining their higher spiritual aspirations or not performing activities necessary for their well-being in the normal course of living. Did you know that the ancient Assyrian demon Rabisu is the classic prototype of an evil supernatural being? He instilled such a fear in humans that their hair literally raised from their body when confronted with knowledge of Rabisu's presence. I mean, that would probably make my hair raise up on end. 17th century Europe began cataloging various demons according to their powers to entice people to indulge in what they called basic instincts or desires. Included in these lists were nightmare demons, demons formed from the semen of copulation, there's a wowsy for you, and demons who deceived persons into believing they could perform transvections, which they defined as being nocturnal flights to sites of sabbats or alleged rites of witchcraft. Malevolent beings Demons, fallen angels, ghosts, goblins, evil spirits in nature, hybrid creatures, the Naracus, creatures of hell, of Jainism, the Onai, attendants of the gods of the underworld in Japanese religions, and other such beings hinder humans achieving a proper relation with God, the spiritual realm, or human life situations. Some angels, they're believed to have fallen from a position of proximity to God. You've heard the story of Lucifer falling from the sky in Judaism and Christianity because of pride or for attempts to usurp the position of the supreme being. In their fallen condition, they attempt to keep humans from gaining a right relationship with God by provoking them to sin. Some medieval scholars of demonology ascribe to a hierarchy of seven archdemons, the seven deadly sins. I'm sure I'm going to butcher these names, so I'm going to apologize <laughs> in advance. But there's Lucifer, that one was easy, pride. Mammon, avarice, Asmodeus, lechery, Satan, anger, Beelzebub, gluttony, Leviathan, envy, and Belphegor, sloth. Besides tempting humans to sin, the fallen angels or devils were believed to cause various types of calamities, both natural and accidental. Like the demons and evil spirits of nature in non-literate religions or oral histories, the fallen angels were viewed as the agents of famine, disease, war, earthquakes, accidental deaths, various mental, emotional, or mental disorders. People afflicted with mental diseases, they were considered to be demon-possessed. That being said, once Western psychology and psychoanalytical studies began emerging in the 19th and 20th centuries, demons were, to a degree, starting to become 
thought more of as projections of unregulated drives of humans, such as Freud's id, ego, superego, libido. Supposedly, those forced humans to act only according to their own selfish desires and taking no account of their effects on other people, while the view of demons at that time was still as a majority throughout the world seen as evil, supernatural, non-human entities. Things known today as schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, and even more common ailments such as depression or anxiety were begun to be understood as mental health afflictions and not always supernatural in origin. So there's this guy, his name is Reverend Martin Messon. He's the 67-year-old minister who spent like more than 40 years studying accounts of demonic possession. And he wrote this book called Alert to Evil. So he did this interview and he said that demons are former humans who sold their humanity in exchange for power and that they feed on humans and possess supernatural abilities such as super strength, magic, and regeneration. They sound like they're in like a D&D game. <laughs> they have an abnormally powerful physical constitution and regenerative ability, which makes them immune to normal weaponry and can regenerate most wounds with ease. The reverend says that most victims of demonic possession could have protected themselves if only they'd known what to do. He says, it's such a tragedy. All these people are wandering around with evil spirits controlling their bodies and eating away at their souls. They could have spotted the danger at the very outset if they'd only known what to look for, but instead were totally vulnerable to this monstrous evil. He's researched all these writings and religions and practices of the occult and all this stuff and said that his research has made it abundantly clear that there were early warning signs of demonic possession. Some of his symptoms include, one, unexplained itchiness, especially of the arms and legs, though there can be significant itchiness in the upper abdomen and specifically behind your left ear. So if your left ear starts itching, you've got a demon in you. Mm. Two, forgetfulness. <laughs> this is a sign that a demon may have had control of your mind for a brief period. If you can't find your car keys, it may be because you are possessed. Damn, I must be possessed a lot. <laughs> I know. I think that uh, probably been possessed more than not possessed. <laughs> Three, unexplained fatigue. Your body may be trying to fight off the demon invasion. Demons love to drain your energy. Four, insomnia. Subconsciously, you are probably aware that an evil spirit is attempting to take over your body and you are afraid to go to sleep. This is verbatim from this guy's book, okay? Mm -hmm. This is a bad sign. The more you are awake, the more the evil spirit possesses you. And number five, irritability. Any negative deterioration in your personality, such as unusual irritability, jealousy, anger, anger or dirty thoughts, may indicate an evil presence is taking over. <laughs> if you complain a lot, you probably are possessed. Hey, Reese, does that mean if we have to take bite all that maybe we're possessed? Because there's a lot of women out there that are going to be possessed right at that moment. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, see, the mite is like an anti-demon. Didn't you know, like, that's what it actually is? They just market it like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's got to be. <laughs> no, listen, this guy, like, I, I know he's a reverend, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to call bullshit on these symptoms. I will say that research has shown that nearly half of the global population believes that possession is a real thing. And the reality is that demands for exorcism have been consistently on the rise in recent years, both among Catholics for whom exorcism remains a sanctioned ritual and among non-Catholics 
But if we acknowledge the possibility that there are evil supernatural beings capable of taking over someone's body, we also have to acknowledge that there is no real concrete scientific evidence to report it. We must also acknowledge that there have been several reported cases of death from exorcism over the years, including that of a three-year-old girl as recently as 2022. Now, that's fascinating to realize that the cases have been rising as opposed to, to going down with, you know, the advances of science and technology. So I don't know if our listeners are aware, but before performing an exorcism, the Vatican won't even consider getting involved if the subject's not already undergone extensive mental health checkups by a multitude of professionals, as well as had thorough medical exams done to rule out the biological cause exhibited. If everything checks out physiologically and psychologically, the church will then do, do the exorcism to their own determination. Things that an actual Catholic priest look for are things that can't easily be faked, such as fluently speaking in a language that was previously unknown to the person and demonstrating an inappropriate strength, which is really fascinating to me because you look at several different religions that they are quite proud of their ability to speak in tongues. But according to the church, an afflicted person's ability to know things that they should have no knowledge of whatsoever, such as personal information about the priest or professionals performing the inquiry, is also a sign they're dealing with an actual demonic possession. They'll still acknowledge the fact that this criteria can be faked, despite how impossible it may seem, and stress the importance of ruling out any other possible causes. Another interesting facet of what the church considers of utmost importance is that it's strictly the body that's possessed by the demon, not the mind. They believe the mind has been put into some sort of suspended state while the demon takes control of the body. And from that, we can draw the conclusion that while the individual may have become possessed due to a weakness or vulnerability of the mind, or perhaps even something such as trauma, PTSD, addiction, mental illness, it's not the mind of the person that's under attack and control. But according to the Catholic News Agency, a fundamental difference between mental illness and genuine demonic possession, it's that a person who's possessed will very clearly and negatively react to the presence and prayers of an exorcist, while someone with a mental illness will not have the same reaction. Although, again, that's not the only criteria. You'd be surprised how many people have attempted to fake being possessed. I guess they don't have anything better to do. Well, I mean, there's so many instances over the years where people have attempted, it's like, just like people fake seizures, you know, they'll, they'll do what they can to get that attention. But you would think that, like, they would, somebody that was faking would have like a huge aversion to like a cross or a rosary or something but they don't follow through on that part is what you're saying i i mean it's it's almost like you know if you walk into the room of somebody faking a possession and you're holding a cross they're going to look at the cross and they're going to start you know spitting and speaking in tongues and everything but if that cross is like on a chain in your pocket and they don't know it's there then they might not have that same reaction yeah that's where that otherworldly knowledge comes in mm-hmm yeah. So, so there are some clear symptoms of demonic possession that the Catholic Church will kind of defer to. And no, it's not an itchy left ear. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't an all-inclusive list, and nor can any one of these determine whether an individual is actually possessed. So they kind of want to look at all of them together. But some of the symptoms can include odd behavior. The person in question will start doing a bunch of things they would normally never do. Maybe they're non-smoker and they start smoking or they start talking in a different language that they didn't speak before or had never actually taken the time to learn. And a lot of times it's like a romance language or a Latin-based language, or they might start to act in just a completely opposite manner of 
what they would before. Night terrors is one of the signs that they look for. And they think that the demon's powers grow stronger at night when the host is asleep, which goes completely against what that reverend guy said. So they may experience horrifying dreams, night terrors. And they also might wake up in the middle of the night and start acting strangely, which is similar to sleepwalking. So got to read all these things together. And it's always so open to subjective interpretation, definitely not objective interpretation. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many times they have to do like sleep studies on people that are exhibiting this before putting it together with some of the other symptoms. Oh, that was something interesting to ask them. I wonder if there's a way that we could actually find out if they use like the the apnea studies or anything like that or the sleepwalking studies. We just talked about this one, but negative reaction to prayer. So the Catholic Church says that this sign is one of the most critical and important as a person possessed by a demon will become physically ill when a priest or exorcist is present and or a saying a prayer. They might try to stop the prayers. They might lash out at the priest. They might act as if they were burned or injured by religious or holy artifacts, such as a rosary. But like we just talked about, how much of that could be an act? If it's just the one symptom that people are showing, is it real or is it, you know, a faker? They might begin to speak in a different voice, one that sounds completely different from their normal speaking voice. So they might, you know, it's usually said that they get like those really low gravelly, like kind of rrr voices when they're, when they're actually possessed. They might have a different personality. Their personality might change abruptly as the demon takes hold. There could be wild mood swings or extremely self-destructive behaviors where they could start acting in a way that's completely out of character. So if all doesn't fix it, then you might be a demon. <laughs> they might get new abilities overnight. They might acquire new technical skills that they never had before with zero practice or knowledge beforehand, um, such as like making weaponry or tactical skills or something like that. And then supernatural knowledge. They may somehow know things that are only known to a select few people. As the demon possesses the body, their mind will begin to merge with the victims and that person suddenly gets the knowledge of otherworldly things. And they use that information in a negative connotation to try to hurt someone close to them or to try to hurt like the, the priest that's coming in to exercise them. So they might bring up like a traumatic childhood memory that they had no way of knowing and use it to further traumatize you and open old wounds. You know, it's crazy because that's why like, I don't know, like it's not that they have this as the list and there's a lot of things that could easily be faked, but I feel like that would be the one that is least likely to be able to fake than the other one. Can you imagine being there and working with someone and they're telling you something, you know, I lost, I know you lost your dog when you were seven and he's here talking to me and telling me it was all your fault. That would definitely mess with your mind and your heart, really mess with your ability to work with them, someone that's possessed. So from what we've learned, there's three stages of demonic possession. There's intersection between the stages. However, there's very distinct features for everyone. Rarely is a demonic possession immediate or overnight. Rather, it's a buildup of the symptoms as it takes over the body and the mind of the host. There's three stages. The first one is manifestation and infestation. And that can affect places, objects, or anything in between. We're talking cars, dolls, squirrels, your home or office. It's like the demon's way of easing in and saying, hey, just want to let you know I'm here. You might be frightened of me because I'm a ghost. But look, it's okay. I'm just a lost little girl. I'm friendly. I won't hurt you. Yeah. Or it can present as a past relative, such as a grandmother. It could come through as a friendly entity through a Ouija session or a seance and presents as a non-threatening entity. It's seeking approval 
and permission to stay around. And it said they need the permission to begin revealing their true selves. And they will slowly gain strength as the target loses theirs. And I have something to say about that later. There's oppression, the stage when the individual or the ones closest to that person start to realize, oh shit, that's not grandma. The demon makes its true identity known and goes into full-blown attack mode. And that stage is designed to break the target down. And it affects their life in any or every aspect, including physical, mental, and psychological. They'll notice increased paranormal activity and physical attacks that can occur, such as bites and scratches or, God, even sexual assaults. Often at this point, in desperation, the victim will reach out to or call psychics or paranormal investigation teams. But that can be incredibly dangerous if they do know what they're dealing with. In many cases of these possessions, calling in these other agencies make things worse, and they'll cause the activity to ramp up. Now that the victim's life and home is in chaos and turmoil, and they're depressed and likely questioning their faith, the demon moves into the final stage, which is full possession. And at that point, that demon, he has enough power and hold over you to gain full control. And by the time they reach that stage, you have little to no self-worth, you have no will to live, or faith left. The demon's in control more often than not, and the affected person can be hearing voices telling them to harm others or themselves. The very soul of the individual is at stake in the absolute worst cases. The demon can have complete control of the host body, and it's like a parasite. Which, really, that's at the base level of what a demon is anyway. The demon's goal at this point is to drive the affected to suicide and take as many people with them on the way, thus condemning their soul to an eternity in hell. So we've talked about what demons are. We've talked about their historical significance, what happens when they choose their victim and decide to possess them. So let's talk a little bit now about demonic hauntings. A demonic haunting is called that when a regular haunting escalates, when it becomes violent or causes harm. We know that demons are negative spirits and they like to manifest themselves in like these terrifying ways with the end goal being to cause ultimate destruction and loss of life. They want to see our lives fall apart in every way and our love lives, happiness, financial ruin are just some of the ways that they'll affect us. The moment that a regular run-of-the-mill residual haunting shows the first inkling of being evil or malevolent, it's time to yeet their asses out and in the haunting entirely. It's well known amongst priests and paranormal investigators and demonologists that a demonic haunting can cross the veil into demonic attachments and possessions. So knowing what attracts demons is the first step in preventing them from taking hold in the first place. But remember, when dealing with hauntings, 99% of the time, it's not an actual demon. So some of the things that may attract demons to a place would be murder-suicide, obviously, any violent death that's occurred in a particular place will generate enough negative energy to attract negative beings. Black magic, so a place that's been used in black magic rituals is an open door for negative beings to come through and linger. And if a group of people participated in these rituals, it's an even bigger magnet. Multiple deaths, another obvious one, any place that's seen multiple deaths can attract demonic hauntings. And this is including but not limited to battlefields, hospitals, mental asylums, or even historic homes and buildings. Um, recurrent negativity, a place where negative people dwell. So if the negativity is strong enough and lasts long enough, it can generate enough energy to draw the attention of negative energy entities. And here's one I didn't know was fire. 
widespread fires that cause loss of life or property damage can sometimes attract demonic entities. Wow. I had no idea about that either. I wonder what they mean by widespread fires. Do they mean taking the lives or of many or, you know, a, a huge amount of damage? I don't know. The first thing I thought of was when Australia was on fire. I was like, shit, they're going to get haunted. Right? I don't know if it means, like, if it's a lot of, like, personal property that people are attached to or destroying, like, widespread habitats where there's, you know, a lot of chaos and destruction in its wake. Or, I don't know, is it just two houses that burn down kind of attracting them? Hmm. That's fascinating. My partner, fire follows my partner's family. And he lost a brother to it as well. Like, they had a lot of fires that have occurred, so... Hmm. Well, we talked about things that attract demons to a place, but what about to a person? Dabbling in the occult. If you play around with, I don't know, Ouija boards, tarot decks, pendulums, those can be attractants for evil or negative entities. And so when you decide to partake in these activities, you, you better ensure that you're protecting yourself. The old adage of making sure to form a protective circle around yourself with salt, visualizations, that sort of thing, those are incredibly important. Let's say that you're performing black magic and you just dive head first. That can open a portal for negative things to come through, especially if you're performing rituals with a group. A person obsessing over death can attract a demon. They can be traipsing around cemeteries or performing seances, visiting haunted places, researching death and murder scenes. If they obsess, it can attract a demon. Ghost hunting without protection, those sort of things. Then there's depression and anxiety. When they're deeply depressed, they can have a weaker aura, which can attract negativity including demons. And then there's drug use and abuse. Just think about how open you are, how vulnerable you are. People who use drugs on a regular basis, they open themselves up to demonic attachment. It depletes your physical and your mental, spiritual energy, leaving you weak enough to allow lower level entities to feed on your energy or, or what's left of it. In most cases, when people think they're being plagued, it's most likely a buildup of negative energy, not a demon. If you consider yourself to be an empath, a witch, a medium, healer, ghost hunter, or a sensitive like me, it's even more important for you to regularly cleanse the negative energy from the environment and yourself. I don't care if you have to sneak in your work and set off alarms in the middle of the night. If you're feeling like there's some bad juju vibes in there when in doubt, sage it out. If you've saged and palo santoed thoroughly and you're still experiencing these things that you think are demonic hauntings, you need to look at actual demonic hauntings. So a demonic possession is when the demons targeted you or someone you love or someone you know, and they're working to first make you trust them and then take you down. And a demonic haunting is when a demon or evil entity has decided to set up home base in your home office environment, which is frequent. It may begin the attachment phase to the people or objects in that environment. And then when these demonic hauntings first begin to happen, the signs are like pretty subtle and they may look like those of your average ghost. We know that they like to present themselves as regular ghosts with a penchant for making themselves seem less threatening by appearing as little Emily who died of typhoid and this is her mom or your great granddad you've only seen pictures of. Right, because you think you're safe. You just, you feel, you feel like you want to help that poor little vulnerable Emily. It lowers your vulnerability. You know, when you've got that little kid goes like, and they're, they're hugging the teddy bear and they've got like the long white gown and, you know, you just feel bad for them. Like, you don't want to, you don't want to sage them out. You don't want to eat them out. Like, you feel bad. I don't know. I, I never trusted little kid ghosts, even like legitimate little kid ghosts, because it, it's so well known that demons will mask as them. 
And even in Ouija sessions, which we don't recommend doing, especially if you don't know how to protect yourself, but people are going to do it anyway. So if you're going to do it anyway, just put some protections up. But anyway, any Ouija sessions where a lost relative comes through needs to get the session closed down immediately. And everyone needs to be coughing on sage fumes for the next few days. If they come through and they say that it's your long-lost relative, it's probably not your long-lost relative. So demonic hauntings, we know they begin as very benign, we might have a ghost type of hauntings. You might hear weird sounds, odd footsteps, doors opening and closing, whispers, faint screams or moaning, white noise, electronic interference. Like the stuff that you see on the ghost hunting shows. There might be unusual sights. So seeing shadows in your peripheral vision or flickering lights and electronics. Objects might move places when your back is turned. You might turn around and turn back around and like your, your kitchen drawer is open. Things in the dark. Figures in the dark. Things like that. Or you might get like a weird feeling like of being watched or this feeling that something's wrong. You might feel like someone's been in your house or building, especially if you live alone. And there might be inexplicable wafts of cold air just, you know, four feet off the ground for like a six-inch cube, but nothing else in that area is that cold. You might get goosebumps. You might have the feeling of being touched by somebody with an invisible hand and smells. So strange smells such as perfume, food smells, especially sulfur, smoke, bad odors like rotting meat or dead animals. You've completely checked everywhere in the house. You cannot figure out where that smell is coming from. Might be a demon. Right. Yeah, as those signs start getting ramped up, that means the demon's gaining energy and it's going to start manifesting itself a whole lot easier. All those previous signs, one or all, they can increase and intensify. And people usually go from, we might have a ghost to we're definitely haunted. So those signs, they're going to get worse. Things like recurrent nightmares, and that can be on a weekly or nightly basis. It can affect only one person in the household, several, everyone, even overnight guests. And then there's something called phantom mania, the feeling of being held down in bed, which is interesting because you think of sleep paralysis that people have talked about, but it goes a little bit further than that. The victim will usually wake up and discover unexplained bruises or scratches. General feelings of discomfort or dread, not being able to fully settle down in your environment, negativity between family members or friends, that increases. It leads to arguments, fights, general discord. A spirit could begin to show itself to one or more occupants. Often, those demons center their focus on one particular person, which can sometimes be a child. And we'll be moving on to that here in, in just a little bit as I tell my story. They can appear to a child often as a nice entity, which is not what happened in Drake's case. If an otherwise normal child becomes withdrawn and has an imaginary friend, this is a big, bad sign. You could have religious objects that could be destroyed, inexplicably lost, things like crucifixes, Bibles, rosaries. Entire rooms or even the entire home can be ransacked, although nothing's been taken, no evidence of a break-in. You could find writing on the walls or other places in the building or a string of really bad luck, like car problems, bank account issues, illness, injury, even death. Signs can and will differ depending on the severity of the haunting or the demon. What could be helpful is if you keep a log of activity and its escalation to help determine what kind of haunting is present. Experts will strongly recommend not engaging, threatening, calling it out, or using any uh, investigative equipment that can anger or provoke the entity and feed their energy further. You know, I really wish I'd done the research for this episode when we first moved in. Instead of living here for a year and doing like 
daily and weekly investigations <laughs> at this house because we are like we're we're getting some of the same activity ramping up and it wasn't until I don't know a month ago that we realized like hey maybe we shouldn't be using the SLS camera in the front room and trying to talk to the ghost that says he's our friend. Oh that can be that's scary. And again it's it's like there's no there's no big giant boundary line to tell you if this is a normal haunting or demonic presence. There's no there's nothing to tell you. And that's what's scary too. Like if you're if you're gonna go in and you're gonna do a paranormal investigation, like yeah, you're gonna have your tourmaline in your pocket and you're gonna have your protections up. But when you're trying to get to the bottom of what it is that you're dealing with, you're gonna investigate. And you can be lied to and misled. Yeah. So I mean, it's scary because even just trying to find out what it is you're dealing with, you could be making it worse. So what do you do if you think you might be haunted? I can't stress this enough, guys. Like 99% of the time, it's much more likely that you're not experiencing a demonic haunting or attachment. However, if you've experienced the things that we've talked about and you still feel that overpowering sensation that you're dealing with something truly evil, or if you've gone through the list and checked off several of the items indicating a demonic haunting or attachment or worse, or you've saged and set your intentions and you're still being affected or the activity continues to escalate, you're going to have to seek professional help immediately. Go to a Catholic priest. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or even religious. Depending on where you live, you might be able to source a local shaman or a medium who's qualified in handling evil spirits. You might live close to a reservation and can find a medicine man or woman there that can help you. But no matter what, do not take matters into your own hands and do not ever be afraid to ask for help. So at this point, Tracy, you've actually dealt with this. Tell us your experience. Spill your tea. Well, in our case, we did not seek any help. We did not I don't I don't know how to explain it. We we did not seek any kind of protection. We had no clue that anything was seriously wrong. It was all just intuition and feelings of something's not right. I think back and um my experience this this what happened to us the event that happened to us was in august and it was in july maybe end of june that we started feeling that i literally started feeling this sense of dread you know like it was talking like we were talking earlier one of the symptoms is this this incredible sense of dread and literally i would fall asleep curled in the fetal position, terrified, terrified that something horrible was about to happen. As a matter of fact, I had scheduled a U-Haul to move us out of the home that we were in on July, I believe it was July 28th. And what happened instead, my 14-year-old, red-headed, freckled, old soul son took his life. He hung himself with a belt in his closet on August 17th, within not very much time after which I was trying to get out. So how long did you guys live there before you started feeling like that sense of dread? Well, what had happened is we moved in there in January. And it interesting because there, I don't know if you've ever seen, like it was a two-story house. Have you ever seen where, like up on the second floor, they have these little, like, it's a knee-high door that mm -hmm. leads into the attic. Yeah, like a closet. Yeah, yeah. It was there was one in our master bedroom, and there was one in my son Tierney's room. Mm -hmm. We both had one of those, and it was creepy because you opened it up, and and the landlords had 
you know, cleaned out the house and it was clean and everything. But you open those doors and there was cat shit in that little alcove. And it kind of creeped me out, but I was like, this is silly. This it's modern day age, no big deal. And I closed it and never really thought of it again. But looking back on it, hindsight is, is a completely, a completely different thing. I do believe that we weren't just haunted. I do believe that it was a demonic possession. We were just discussing some of the signs. Yes. And I'm looking back and reminding myself of some of the signs that were there that I didn't, I didn't notice or see at all. And mm-hmm. <laughs> something as simple as, you know, you mentioned unexplained itchiness. I mean, I, I kind of laughed. I kind of giggled at Reverend Martin. But there were a couple mm-hmm. things that he said that made sense and, and something that you said too, Lucy. You said unexplained itchiness. Drake would walk around and he would be scratching himself. Now, I can't really specifically say anything about his left ear, but he started spending more time in his room and he was 14. Okay, so that seems like a very normal phase and stage in life that he would be spending more time in his room. So I didn't question it a whole lot. I didn't think that was too bad. Come to find out later, it it was. I wanted to give him his independence, so I didn't question it too much. And But every time I would see him, he would be scratching his arms and the sides of his face. And he was always really tired. He was very, very tired. And I just, I, I think back on some of these signs that seem normal, but I look back and I'm like, he had those signs. He had the fatigue. He had the insomnia and definitely the irritability. But again, what teenager doesn't? Right. Especially like with the the hormones coming in at that specific teenage age. That's not like a 16-year-old that hit puberty four years ago. This is active. Body's going through all these changes. So you're tired. You're hungry. You're pissy all the time. It's not anything that would be like, oh, that's weird. Like, it's just, it's that age range. So let me ask you something. You're a sensitive. So when you guys first moved in, was that sense of dread obvious? Was it right there? Or was there a gradual buildup? Did you guys, you know, come in and be like, hey, like, I wonder if this place is haunted because it feels haunted versus just little things here and there that you look back on now and you're like, oh, shit. But at the time, like, you were able to just kind of, well, see, and that's the interesting thing, too. Yeah, it did creep up kind of slowly. And, you know, I look back and I tell people that sometimes evil is so pervasive and so malevolent that it's almost like you can't even feel anything creepy. You can't feel anything bad. We were quite happy when we first moved into that place. And there were a few little things, like I said, when I opened those alcoves or we had an ADT security home system. And we had parrots and we had a, uh, had one in our parrot room. We had one aimed at the staircase. And there were times that I would look into the camera to see the view from the camera. And I kept expecting like a face to pop up and scare me like something in the movies. I mean, I never did, but I would see like motes of stuff floating in the air and it would be eerily quiet. And it was like I would just expect to be like, you know, blah, and it, and it wouldn't happen. But right, right. Just, just little things. Um, and it started building up, you know. Uh, like I said, we would uh, we used to sit down and we'd have pizza and watch a movie. 
And it got to where Drake would say, I don't want to do this. So he'd go to his room. And he would literally be in his room in the dark without the light on, just doing nothing. Just little things like that that are very unsettling when you think about it afterwards, but were seemingly normal while it was happening. Drake tended to get a little more clumsy, too. And I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But he loved to cook. He was learning to cook. And the night before he did what he did, he climbed up in the tree of the front yard. We were all outside and he casually announced that he thought cooking was nothing that he wanted to do anymore. Like he was just completely, it was like an obsession of his. He loved it. And then that night he was just like, I'm not going to do it anymore. I don't feel like it. He just seemed to lose any enthusiasm for life. He was just sort of irritable, but non-interactive with all of us. It was like he didn't, he just didn't care anymore. And at that point, I did start to get a little worried, like, well, maybe he's going through some sort of depression. And that was, mm-hmm. but that was the night before he took his life. That was the night before. So there wasn't a whole lot I could do about it. As a matter of fact, when Drake was younger, he was a very problematic child. I mean, he was the type that did all sorts of, of things to bring attention to himself. He was destructive. And since we had moved into that house in Ohio, he had become amazingly well-mannered, was getting up and mowing the lawn without being asked. It was like I had this feeling of, wow, he's really improving, except for the irritability and the wanting to be alone. Right. But that day, the day that it happened, my partner and I, we were heading to work and we were going to be gone about 150 miles away. And we were going to come home about seven o'clock that night. And we were leaving Drake and his brother and sister at home. And there were 14, 13, and 16. And he was homeschooled, but it was summertime. And we also had a nanny that would come in on the days that we were going to be gone overnight. We had a neighbor across the street. We had a security system. So I felt safe, you know, leaving them at home, especially Mm -hmm. with the way Drake had improved with his behavior. So I thought it would be fine. However, (laughs) the night before... He had gotten in trouble because he had been on a webcam with his girlfriend from Canada. They had an online romance. And he got in trouble because the rule was you don't do webcams or anything like that until you're at least 16. And so I had given him a consequence. And one of the things that he struggled with was spelling and writing. And so I gave him sentences to do, except for I always let him come up with it. Let him come up with some sort of a positive affirming type of sentence. That way he had some sort of control and some sort of ownership over what was going on. And I had told him to do these sentences and he came to me. He's like, mom, what do I, what do I write? And I said, well, that's up to you. And mm-hmm. me being the smart ass that I am, I pulled this paper over and in cursive, I wrote, this is Drake. And even though I'm doing sentences, I still love my mom. <laughs> And I thought that was funny. And he kind of laughed at it. And he walked off and he took his little book to his room. And that's what it was going to take to earn the computer back. I took the computer from him. And so he he left and he started, I don't know, I don't remember what he was doing that night. But the next morning when we got up, we were going to go to work. And that's when he had started doing the sentences is that morning. And Chris and I, that's my partner, we got ready to go and we got on our bikes and we were headed to work. And that morning, it was like a crisp morning uh, for us anyway, because we had come from Oklahoma and the weather is kind of muggy and warm in August. And 
when you go to Ohio, it, it's a lot cooler from your experiences. And so we're on the bikes. I'm feeling all free. I'm feeling all happy. Oh, Drake had taken the news of having to do these sentences and losing his computer. He had taken it pretty well. And kid you not, in the past, Drake would have taken a knife and stabbed the wall. Or he would have thrown a huge fit. He would have threatened to to do you know something horrible and here he was taking it calmly and maturely which i think is really interesting because we talked about demons taking over and their behavior changing and then becoming more hostile and and all that and in this case drake was behaving more rationally more calm more more together if that makes any sense i was just thinking that that was kind of the opposite if he had, you know, made that adjustment or that change in behavior when you first move. That's that's what's interesting. Now, did he start writing the sentences before you guys even left? You know, I'm not sure, but I do know. I'm not sure if he had started the sentences before we left, but before we left, he did bring me a note, and I don't have that note because the police still have it. But it was pleading his case for more privacy, for wanting to be able to use the webcam. I guess he wanted more freedom and probably to be able to talk to his girlfriend. And he was mad that I had taken that away. And so I was pretty reasonable, I think, with the kids on a regular basis, which, of course, is why he brought me the note. So I read the note and I told him, I said, okay, yeah, we'll talk about this. Once you're done with your sentences and you're done with your consequence, then you get your computer back and we will talk about this. And so I left with him knowing that we could talk about it. I do know mm -hmm. that at some point between when we left and before noon, he had started those sentences. That's what doesn't make sense to me. Why, if it was, if it was a depression thing, why would he start a punishment knowing that he was going to end right. his life? And to further confuse you or to make you wonder, afterwards, when I got the autopsy report, there was theobromine in his autopsy report. And so there was theobromine in his system. And that means that he sat down listening to music, writing his sentences and eating chocolates. And then he stood up and went and hung himself. I just, oh my God. Nothing about this makes sense. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. And there were things that happened that later I looked at. During the, t during the time all this was happening, little things were happening, but I wasn't putting them together. You know, there were signs, but I just, I regret to this day that I didn't put them together. I mean, how do you know? How do you know that this and this and this is going to add up when isolated incidences, it's just kind of like a, huh, and you go about your day. He's itching. Maybe he's got allergies. Exactly. And I ended up taking him to the clinic because he told me that he was having a hard time breathing. Like he had some sort of respiratory thing. Took him to the clinic. They told me that he had some sort of allergic reaction to his cat, which had never happened before. So the cat had to be moved into the bathroom and and live right. there temporarily until we could figure out what was going on. But it was an allergic reaction, supposedly. But little things. He came to me and he asked me one day if I could force Tierney to move back into his room with him because him and Tierney used to share a bedroom. But then they decided they wanted a different room. And so Tierney moved upstairs and Drake stayed downstairs in the room he was in. And I asked him why, and he wouldn't explain. He would just say, well, can't you force Tierney to move into my room? And I was like, you know, how fair would that be to Tierney? And he was like, well, I guess it wouldn't be. So, you know, that was dropped. He even, this almost breaks me every time I think of it, but he even told me he was scared of his closet. And I asked him why. 
And he would just shrug his shoulders and tell me, I don't know, it creeps me out. But I left it because with Drake, he was very stubborn. You could not force him to tell you anything. You had to let him come to you in his own time. And I kid you not, if I had known what was happening, I would have sat there every hour, every second of every day that it took for him to to tell me what was really going on. But I was trying to give him the respect that a growing boy wants and needs, you know, let him have his private time in his room, let him keep his own thoughts to himself. As a matter of fact, the day that he took his life, I was driving down the road, I drive a semi, and we had been on the phone, and Drake was mad. He, he was in the middle of doing his sentences, and he was mad because he said that, oh, he had been in an argument with his sister, and he said that he didn't want to tell her everything about everything about his life, you know, and so his privacy was very important. And I tried to respect that. Right. Well, he also, I mean, he, he had a traumatized childhood. And so to open up at all had to have taken an enormous effort on both of you, on you and on him. And so with kids like that, the more you try to force them, the more you're just going to drive them further into themselves and lose that relationship and trust that you've both worked so hard to exactly, establish. Exactly, exactly. So you can't sit him down and look him in the eye and say, why are you so determined to get your brother in the room? Why are you so, what's going on with the closet that's got you freaked out? You can't outright exactly. ask them that. Exactly, because he, you know? he literally, when he wants privacy. And I think back to, after all was said and done, I had talked to his online girlfriend's mother. Her name was Candy. And I was talking to Candy and I said, I'm having a really hard time being able to forgive myself for not following up on him saying that his closet creeped him out and not forcing him to tell me because when he told me that he was scared of his closet, I was just like, well, why? He didn't answer. I don't know. It creeps me out. But I didn't follow up on that. And and I told her, I said, but don't tell Becca. That was his girlfriend's name. Don't tell her because I'm pretty sure he would be embarrassed if Becca knew that him being a 14-year-old boy that he was scared of his closet. And Candy told me, she said, Tracy, she's already told me about that. He apparently told Becca that he was seeing shadows in his room and they weren't his, but he didn't want her to tell anybody because he didn't want to look like a wimp. And to be experiencing right. something that profound and that scary, and still, as a teenage boy, they don't want to reveal their secrets and their embarrassments, their, their frailties, their vulnerabilities. They don't want to reveal that. And something even that scary he didn't feel like he could. Right. Well, it, it, there's that stigma of seeing shadows. People are going to think that I'm crazy. I can't talk about this. Even with my mom that I'm close with, I can't say I'm seeing this, I'm feeling this, because maybe she's going to take me somewhere and have me assessed and mm -hmm. they won't let me leave. So there's that real inherent fear. And when there's an entity like this that's that's fucking with their heads and trying to instill like this uncertainty and this vulnerability and playing off of them. It's even less likely that they can come to somebody and right. say something, you know, without that. Worry. It doesn't matter how good of a relationship he had with you or the family or anybody else in the back of his mind, there's still that worry of they're just going to think that I'm crazy. They're going to put me on medicine. They're going to take me away. And I think in his case that they're going to take me away or send mm -hmm. me away would probably be at the forefront of his mind. So as a 14-year-old boy, 
he was probably just like, I will handle this on my own and I will deal with it the best I can and I'm not going to tell anybody so that nobody can use it against me. To me, it's clear cut what happened. But how do you explain that in a police investigation? Yep, and and, and it seems so clear cut in hindsight. But like I said, those signs, I think back on them and I just, I so badly wish I could have made the connections. I literally, over two weeks' time, on my semi, we would be in a different interstate. We'd be, you know, in a different state, different times of day, different weather. And there were birds. I had at least a dozen birds slam into our truck while I was driving it. And I found out later from other people that said that was a sign of impending death of warning. I just thought it was mm-hmm. bizarre, but I didn't yeah. do anything about it. But how For two to three you- months... Before he died, I think I already said this earlier, I would literally curl into the fetal position feeling this horrible dread. Something horrible was going to happen. And like I said, I even had a U-Haul scheduled to go back to Oklahoma because we needed to leave. I didn't know why or how, but I knew we needed to go because something horrible was going to happen. But my partner convinced me that we should stay just a little bit longer to save up some money. Because we were going to make yeah. some life-changing decisions about our career, and we were we were going to go do something different. And but then on August 17th, that's when he took his life, and it was July 28th that we had the U-Haul scheduled. So there's another regret. Oh, our home security system, the one I mentioned earlier. There was yeah. a period of time, I think within probably two to three weeks before he was gone, that I opened it up. We were on the road. I opened up the screen to look to see what the cameras were seeing. And we had another camera in each room or in Drake's room. It was mounted on one wall so that it faced out the windows into the street. And I opened it up one day and I looked in and literally there were some orbs there. And I thought, well, those are streetlights. You know, I thought, oh, the streetlights look weird. And then I remembered we didn't have streetlights right there. And they were like yellowish white. They didn't bounce up and down spookily or anything like that. It just looked like a grainy image of some lights. And it was 2015, for fuck's sake. They made me feel strange. It seemed a little eerie, but at the same time, you're like, it's 2015. This is real life. Quit being ridiculous. And I remember sliding the phone over to Chris and us looking at it and him going, wow, that's weird. And then I closed out of the application and we didn't think or say or do anything about that either. But in all honesty, there's really nothing you could have done short of calling a priest in this situation. If you had tried to investigate further, if you had tried to figure out if there was something going on and open a line of communication, it could Mm -hmm. have gotten a lot worse. It could have affected more of it. could have done a lot more damage. Losing one child is bad enough, but imagine losing three or more. So how there's no possible way that you could have known what was happening and what was going to happen. If I were in your situation, I would, like, that's strange, but not add it all up together. There's no way to handle it when it's happening like this. It's just creeping up, and it's a little thing here, and it's a little thing there, and there's no no dots to connect yet. No, I don't think that there is anything you could have done unless you had sat down and been like, I need to call a priest. I don't know why I need to call a priest, but I need to call a priest. Like, there's nothing else that you could have done that wouldn't have amplified yeah i wonder i wonder if we had really paid close attention if it would have gone more horribly uh, more quickly 
I do know that afterwards I talked to several people from a church and they would tell me that they were coming over and literally they would call and say, we're, we're too scared. They literally said, we're too worried or too scared about doing it. Now, I did not call a Catholic church. I didn't even think of that. Oh, and another instance that happened is my daughter called me. Well, my son called me first. As I was driving, he called me and he was shrieking into the phone that Drake had hung himself. He hung up and JC called me back and she told me that Drake was hanging from a, a, a rod by his belt. And I instructed her to get a knife and cut him down. So she sawed through that belt and he collapsed to the floor and she started doing CPR on him. And of course, she, she wasn't able to bring him back. And while I'm driving, I had Chris call the paramedics. I had him call the nannies. So the nannies were on their way over there. The paramedics arrived and standing in the house, JC heard the policeman talking about how this was not the first time they'd been there and they had been there recently for another suicide. And I did find out the next morning after Drake was gone, the detective called me. Now, mind you, I'm not home when all of this is happening. But the detective had called me and the nannies had told me that the detective, first of all, had found the note where I had written, this is Drake. And even though I have to do sentences, I still love my mom. I wrote that in cursive. Yeah. And I guess what the nannies had said is that the detective was for a very short time considering it not to be a suicide, that maybe somehow I or someone else is culpable for his mm -hmm. suicide. And I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was that note that I wrote. Maybe they took that as his, his goodbye letter or something, but that was taken into custody. And the next morning she had called and had asked me, she said, is there anything weird going on in your house? Now I had set up a little altar with some gratitude and positive affirming cards that I would pull every day and I would light my sage, that sort of thing. And so she asked me if something weird was going on. I told her the only thing weird that I had really noticed was that it felt like somebody was watching me. And I was up on the second floor and it always felt like there was somebody down in the yard watching me, which I thought was weird. I told her that. And then she came back and said, well, I just find it really weird that 18 months ago, there was an eight-year-old girl that took her life and hung herself with a belt in your son's closet. The same closet. And coupled with my daughter hearing the policeman talk about not being there too long previously on another suicide, I definitely believed it. That shook me to my core. I mean, literally, if I had been standing up, I would have fallen to my knees. Mm -hmm. I told my attorney because I had to get an attorney to handle this because we were accused of being Satanist and being Satan worshipers. My partner has a ball python and us being pagan, he had placed a chain link pentacle on the nightstand next to his snake. Well, his snake had also just recently shed and he took that shed skin and he placed it on the pentacle. And I guess that's what led this, this detective to think that we were Satanist plus my little altar set up. And so anyway, a, a lot of things occurred and uh, we ended up having to get an attorney. Well, when I told my attorney that the detective had told me on the phone that she had gone up into our room and felt a lot of energy. And now mind you, the detective literally told me that she was walking up the stairs. She felt a lot of energy that she felt like I had opened some sort of portal. And then she told me about the eight-year-old girl I told my attorney about that. And of course, his immediate reaction was, do not talk to that woman again. She's trying to find you responsible for Drake's death. And, you know, she's probably playing mind games with you. But he came back to me and he told me that his colleague, another attorney that he worked with, was the one that actually handled the case of the eight-year-old girl that hung herself. 
There was a 13-year-old girl that also hung herself in the backyard from a gigantic tree. It was cut down. But what we found out from the neighbors is that there was a 13-year-old girl. And that's, that's all the ones that we were aware of. But, my God, that's enough. Absolutely. Was Drake the youngest one? He in the was house? the middle child. So it, whatever it is, it definitely had like a targeted. Well, I don't age know. Break. I mean, the thirteen-year-old girl, but that eight-year-old girl. Did Tierney or JC ever have any experiences in the house or see anything or mention of being afraid of anything? You know, there? I don't know what I could possibly tell you about Tierney and JC. JC, his sister, she saw shadows a couple times in her tablet and she told me that she turned around nothing was there and that was it that's the thing she ever noticed Tierney never reported anything strange or weird nothing I will tell you I felt like that house when we went through this we moved out as quickly as we could and the day that I got the U-Haul our plan was we're going to pack in one day and get the fuck out but it became apparent that we didn't have enough time and it was getting dark and we were going to end up spending the night again in the house. And I gathered everyone on the first floor right by the stairs and I told them all, I said, y'all may think I'm crazy, but I think this house either wants us to stay or it wants to get its last kicks in. So if I see y'all going up and down these stairs without holding on to the banister, you're in deep shit. Do not go up and down these stairs without holding on to that banister. And pay attention to what you're doing. And kid you not, within probably 30 minutes of that, JC was at this top two or three stairs, and she fell on her stomach, skidded down all the way down the stairs to the floor. Now, luckily, all it did was skin up her shins and scare the shit out of her, but I really feel like that was the house, again, either wanting to hurt or wanting to keep. Oh, my God. You know, I wonder how much worse it could have been if you didn't mm. have the altar, if you didn't have the protections in place, if it wasn't, if it wasn't you that was there, if it was another family with another son around his age, like how much worse would it? That's have interesting been? to think of because, you know, I have a lot of regret, a lot of guilt, survivor's guilt, a lot of mother's guilt. So I never, I never thought of that part of things that maybe, maybe I did offer some sort of protection. You know, I wonder, like, if if, they, if it would have gone after all the kids, if it would have gone after one of you and made one of you do something horrible to, you know, a child. We don't know. We don't know what this thing was. We don't know who it was or what its intentions were for the long game. Maybe there was some kind of a, a panic that set in that caused him to do what he did when he did it instead of some mm -hmm. build up or lead up to it. Because it, it, I keep getting... Why would he do the punishment and then just turn around and, you know, end his life? Right, Why right. Why would he be working towards something better, something in the future, sitting there listening to his music, eating chocolate, and then get up and do it? Something else occurs to me. One of the other things that he said to me was that he never wanted to leave that house. Huh. Do you think that was truly him talking or there was something else? I don't know. Was he possessed? I know that, uh, like, one of the things I used to do is I would ruffle his hair. I was the only one that was allowed to ruffle his hair. I was the only one allowed to, you know, sort of tickle him or hug him. And it had gotten to where he did not want me touching him. I went up to go tickle him, and he was just, he would get very angry and storm off to his room. And again, is that a teenager thing? Right. 
Is that a 14-year-old boy just being like, Mom, you're embarrassing me? Right, stop it. it. Yeah. So I I don't have answers for that. Like, that just, I don't think you're ever going to know. Unless something actually steps up and says, yes, I did this, then there's going to be. When I think back and I think about Drake saying he never wanted to leave that house, that house didn't want to, whatever was there, I think wanted to hurt, but I think they wanted to keep. You know, that last day that I had that feeling either they wanted to get one last kick in or they wanted to keep us there and were going to be angry that we were leaving, I think my instincts were true and that it was that they didn't want us leaving, that it, they, whatever, did not want us leaving. I'll tell you, that year, I not only divorced my husband of 23 years, but we lost Drake and I was diagnosed with cancer. And I was talking to a friend today and she actually can see dead people. (laughs) That sounds funny because of the movie and everything, but she literally can see and communicate with dead people. And one of the things that she told me that demons can actually make you sick. And she felt a sense, a strong sense or feeling that the reason I had cancer and I was diagnosed with cancer is because whatever was in that house was sucking out of me any kind of vitality and that I became sick and I mean it was type three I was almost there I was almost a goner and it was ovarian and uterine cancer and so all of those events occurring I think it was I think it was affecting all of us in some way shape or form absolutely absolutely you know I wonder because of the type of cancer that it was if Again, like going back to the protections that you had in place, not knowing what you were protecting against, if you know, because that's the motherly organs, you know. So, I don't know if you putting those protections up, it absorbed some of that into you. So, you're thinking I took that on? Yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. And I don't, I mean, we'll never know, but I do wonder if maybe that, that protection that you put in place kind of deflected some of that negative energy from the kids back onto yourself. Hmm. Well, I will tell you, I I really, like I said earlier, I do believe that that evil was so pervasive and so deep-seated that it wasn't obvious. You know, they say the devil Mm -hmm. can come to you and give you all your desires and make you happy. And we were very happy in that house for a majority of the time feeling like everything was wonderful and and all that. And I would just get occasional, you know, hair-raising, creepy events that were brought to my attention. And then it really ramped up the last couple, three, the last three to four months that we were there. It ramped up and it went incredibly fast, you know. And, And one thing I did learn, a lifelong lesson just because you don't believe in evil or because you think that if you can just ignore it, mm-hmm. that evil won't affect you, you're wrong. You're just lucky it hasn't happened yet. So right. you need to do daily protection. You need to protect against evil influence and evil forces on a daily basis. And it sounds like I'm being some sort of paranoid delusional standing on the street corner saying, the devil's going to get me, protect me against evil. But it's what I do. Right. It is. It's it's everywhere, you know. And that's that's one of the reasons that, you know, this kind of stuff is so difficult for a lot of people to talk about. You know, how do you 
have a conversation about protecting yourself when you're seeing shadows out of the corners of your eyes. Most people, like, how do they even talk about that? How do they talk about, like, the, the gut feelings, like, you had that you don't know where it's coming from. You just know, like, there's a sense of dread. There's a sense of something's going to happen. Who do you even talk to about that? Right. What do you do? You say, hey, how's the weather? How you doing? Oh, by the way, I feel like I'm possessed or I feel like there's something evil in my home. How, how do you approach that? Who do you talk to? Right. That's you know, kind of the point of this is to, to establish that safe place, try to get people help when you know they start to, to get those kind of feelings, to try to have a community where people can say like, hey, you guys aren't going to think that I'm crazy, so I'm going to tell you, like, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing. Like, I need help. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I'm so glad that I'm a part of this and that, that we've started this Haunted Tea podcast. So, you guys, come on and join us next week while we brew up another cup of Haunted Tea. Boom. Oh, and there's a Patreon page. Um, Haunted Tea Podcast. There's a Facebook group, Haunted Tea Podcast, where you guys can come in and discuss episodes, talk to each other, um, share your own experiences. Email us your stories to hauntedteapodcast at gmail.com and come tune in next Sunday. See y'all then. We'll see you there.